Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 86, November 7th to November 13th, 1862. Last week, we talked about the skirmish at Barbie's Crossroads in Virginia, as well as Ambrose Burnside taking over for the Army of the Potomac. This week, we need to backtrack just a little bit and better cover the events directly after the Battle of Antietam. The movement of the army by McClellan was covered in what is now known as the Loudoun Valley Campaign. But first, we need to talk about something that may be deja vu for some folks. We need to talk about Jeb Stuart riding around McClellan again. Before we get into Jeb, though, I do want to mention that we have new Patreon content posted. This was a memoir review I mentioned last episode, Hardtack and Coffee. So that is posted on the Patreon. And if that sounds like something that would interest you, getting a better understanding of just the everyday life of a Civil War soldier, I do review that memoir. So... There is a link to the Patreon in the description, and your contribution is greatly appreciated. So you remember in the Peninsula Campaign how Jeb Stewart rode around the Federal Army, frustrating the Federal Cavalry. Well, he is going to do the same thing again in October of 1862. But why would Jeb Stewart perform such an action? it could draw the attention away from Lee's army as it recovered from the Maryland campaign. It would also be good for intelligence gathering. Lee would want to confirm the intentions of the Federal Army. Would they sit there, or would they move out against him? There could also be valuable supplies gained by the good people of Pennsylvania. Additionally, the capture of key government officials might lead to exchanges in the form of rebel prisoners. You can also imagine that with Lee's army not being at full strength, any prisoners that were captured during the Antietam campaign would become valuable, so those kinds of individuals being bargaining chips would be advantageous. I think there is also another reason which I've seen thrown out there as a potential possibility, and that is that Lee was still hoping he could get some kind of news that would allow him for some offensive action to finish out the year. As we have seen, there would be ill feeling about how the campaign had ended. Maybe he could continue with his plan to invade and winter in the north, gaining back some of the lost momentum with the European powers. Most of the hope for foreign recognition was gone after the defeat near Sharpsburg, but maybe, just maybe, they could get some of those points back. You also need to take into consideration the kind of individual that Jeb Stewart is, always one for flair and the dramatic, so he is going to relish the opportunity to continue to grow his legend by riding around the Federal Army once again. 
so Stuart was going to gather information. He could take hostages if permissible and destroy railroads. These things were all on the schedule. Chambersburg was deemed the target because of a key bridge there that connected the eastern portion of Pennsylvania with the western portion. This would allow for supply of the rest of the state with coal from around the Pittsburgh area. Stewart would add to the capture of horses to the list of objectives because this was a commodity sorely needed by the rebels. But if you notice, I said the good people of Pennsylvania. They were still thinking that Maryland might join the Confederate cause. Any plundering of their citizens might lead to negative press that would hurt those chances. So Pennsylvania would be the restriction. The overall rules were that there was to be no personal plundering and no straggling. During this operation, it is going to be questionable as to how heavily the no personal plundering thing was enforced. Some records have it that Maryland still had some looting going on. Looting or not, though, October 9th kicks off the raid. 600 men were pulled from three brigades of cavalry, with Wade Hampton, Grumble Jones, and Fitzhugh Lee, the subordinates under Jeb Stewart. Quick action would see the Confederate troops through to Pennsylvania. Federals would spot Stewart, McClellan receiving orders that none were to return to Virginia. That task would fall on Commanders George Stoneman and Alfred Presenton. While we have already introduced George Stoneman, I believe we have not introduced Alfred Pleasanton. Pleasanton was a native of Washington, D.C., who attended West Point before serving in the 2nd Dragoons, seeing action before the war. He will serve in the East for a time, but be sent to Missouri, not really a good political player. Pleasanton will resign from the army after the war when told he would be subordinate to two officers who had been junior to him during the war and graduated behind him at West Point. Mercersburg, Pennsylvania was the first target, the Confederates moving from there through southern PA. It may surprise you to know that Stuart actually had men that were native to the area who would guide him on the journey. Eventually, he would get to Chambersburg, where rains would not allow for the burning of the bridge, but it would allow for capture of some civilians and supplies. Anything not taken would be destroyed. At this point, Alfred Pleasanton is pursuing the enemy, but he falls victim to faulty intelligence. Throughout this campaign, Stuart's movements are defined by quick thinking and trying to deceive the enemy which he does well. The Confederates eventually arrive at Cashtown, which is close to Gettysburg. Once back into Maryland, Pleasanton's cavalry will come close to catching them at Emmitsburg, missing them by an hour. Once again, Stuart will use his decisive and quick thinking to maneuver his men toward White's Ford to get back into Virginia. This would avoid the concentrated forces that were against his 1,800 men. 
Stuart would use Major Pelham's artillery to great effect, clearing the way for his forces. The enemy cavalry would form up to meet the Confederates, but the attack would not come. Pleasanton stymied yet again while Pelham's guns covered the retreat. The raid was a resounding success. Stuart reporting one man wounded, four captured while capturing some 30 men and 1,200 horses. It was 130 miles of raid, successfully riding around McClellan again. A huge morale boost would be given to the Confederates, functioning in the same way as the first ride around McClellan had, with valuable supplies captured in the process. Pleasanton and Stoneman would blame each other, while Lincoln would be fed up with the ineptitude of McClellan. Stewart's troopers would be immortalized in their song, Giant the Cavalry, which included some lines about the Pennsylvania raid. And I actually have some of the lyrics here. And no, I am not going to sing them. I don't think anybody would really want that. Were the boys that rode to Pennsylvania, rode to Pennsylvania, rode to Pennsylvania. Were the boys rode to Pennsylvania, bully boys hey, bully boys ho. If you want to have a good time, join the cavalry, join the cavalry, join the cavalry. If you want to catch the devil, if you want to have fun, if you want to smell hell, join the cavalry. The big fat Dutch gals hand around the bredium, hand around the bredium, hand around the bredium. The big fat Dutch gals hand around the bredium. Bully boys hey, bully boys ho. Not the catchiest of tunes, but interesting nonetheless. Music is a good segue where we can talk about Jeb and his growing popularity. You see, Stuart was ready to play the part of chivalric knight with a confidence and arrogance that oftentimes got him into trouble. Jeb started to wear a cape lined with scarlet, a large plumed hat, and golden spurs. Additionally, he would have young and attractive officers added to his staff. There would also be a good connection with the lyrics that I have just recited, and music in general. He added a particularly talented musician to his staff, something you did not do unless they had military experience. In Maryland, he would throw a ball famously, being interrupted by advancing Federals. Interrupted, he would ride out to engage them, before returning to the festivities. Stuart would have a love of talking to young and attractive women, although it is debatable if anything past talking ever occurred. Riding not once, but twice around McCullen would be a great feat. It would also be potentially disastrous in the Gettysburg campaign, the ego of Stuart depriving Lee of his valuable cavalry. So also, we can connect that to the Battle of Brandy Station as well, that we will get to in 1863. But that is, as I say often, a story for another time. So speaking of being fed up with McCollin, that leads us nicely into the next topic, the Loudoun Valley Campaign of 1862. Now, the Loudoun Valley Campaign of 1862 
is not a campaign that I expect very many casual Civil War folks know a great deal about, but it is fairly significant. This is officially the final straw for Lincoln in terms of McClellan. Lee had decided that he would remain in Winchester to rest and resupply. He could have withdrawn further south into Virginia, but this would have meant abandoning his wounded and losing more men to straggling. It seemed like the better option to stay in northern Virginia and bank on McClellan's already well-recorded habit of overestimating enemy strength and not attacking. As we mentioned last episode, McClellan is still in Sharpsburg, wishing to reorganize and resupply his army, who did also take a beating at Antietam, let's point out. But Lincoln would be frustrated with this lack of progress. We have a famous quote of Lincoln asking why McClellan could not act like the enemy officers that he faced. At a certain point, I do want to maybe do a little segment or analyze how Lincoln communicates with some of his immediate subordinate officers, especially in terms of the commanders in the Army of the Potomac. See, throughout the war, Lincoln is trying to find the right guy. But he has to take several different approaches with these officers. We need to understand, as I point out sometimes, that these are actual people with real feelings. And there are different ways in which a good leader, a good manager, is able to communicate with those who are under them. So Lincoln has different approaches and it tells in his correspondences with them. We can kind of see, especially toward the end with McClellan, that he's getting a lot of promises and not too much to show for them. So he's getting less and less tolerant of this behavior and it, it does show in the way in which he communicates with McClellan. But Little Mac would finally move out with some reconnaissance in force toward the Confederate armies. These movements would actually show that Loudoun Valley, which we already talked about when going over the Second Manassas Campaign, was very lightly defended. If troops were to move down this valley, they could cut Lee off from his most direct route to protect the capital. He would have to fall back further south in the Shenandoah Valley, probably going all the way to Stanton before turning east and moving to Richmond. That could potentially prove to be a disaster. McClellan would still be cautious, but unroll a plan to push through Loudoun Valley and potentially pin Lee with another part of his force in the Shenandoah Valley. It will be here where Lee will divide his forces. Once these moves were underway, he would understand what the objective was. Stuart and his cavalry would screen the movement of the infantry. It would be a race to see who was going to get to Culpeper first. Lincoln would decide that if Lee got there first, then it would mean McClellan would hit the bricks. Since you hopefully heard last episode, I bet you can guess what happened. This campaign would see some cavalry skirmishing, which we started to talk about last week with Barbie's Crossroads. 
McClellan talks about how they need fresh horses for his cavalry, to which Lincoln will respond that it did not seem like his cavalry was doing much at all. This goes back to the interesting type of correspondences that he's sending, showing his lost patience. This, of course, was in response to letting Jeb Stuart ride around his army. We have another great quote from Abraham Lincoln, saying that if they did not try, they certainly would not succeed. John Geary will lead another reconnaissance into the area, showing not many Confederates still in the valley. Now, I have seen it said that the plan that McClellan actually comes up with is a sound one, and one that may have cut Lee's army into two where it could have been defeated piecemeal. Jackson was staying put while Longstreet and his wing moved out, trying to get to the Manassas Gap Railroad. McClellan also had this objective. But why exactly did Jackson remain where he was? Well, Lee hoped that he would be able to fall on the flank of the enemy. In fact, he would have the same hope as Burnside moved more into central Virginia, which we will talk about here in a few episodes. Remember, it is getting to be late fall and early winter, so the road conditions are not good. Another problem is that the area in which the Federal Army travels is going to be one that was picked clean of any good forage by heavy campaigning seasons earlier in the year. So there would be some logistical problems for both armies. As we have mentioned, there would be numerous cavalry duels pitting Pleasanton against Stuart. John Pelham will continue his great year performing well in these skirmishes against the Federals. Stuart's goal is to screen Longstreet while also buying some kind of time for the Confederates to get there. He does a well enough job, the Confederates winning the race and ultimately sealing the fate of McClellan. So we have the Battle of Unison, which was Stuart's delaying engagement. His cavalry, along with John Pelham's artillery, would defend against a larger Union force made up of Pleasanton's cavalry, as well as supporting infantry. They would do so for an extended period of time. Unison is a small town south of Purcellville in Leesburg, which is south and east of Winchester, currently sitting in Loudoun County, Virginia, hence part of the Loudoun Valley Campaign. Stewart would spend the first day surprising and overwhelming Yankee pickets before waiting to meet the oncoming army. Reportedly, he would be facing a force as large as a corps, spotters on the Blue Ridge seeing the long lines of infantry and supplies. On November 1st, 1862, Stewart would use Pelham's artillery and his troops effectively, making Pleasanton believe he was facing a larger force than was there. The Federals would delay as the cavalry officer called for reinforcements. On the 2nd, Stewart would dismount his men and place them along a stone wall, redeploying Pelham and his artillery to great effect, pausing the Federals yet again. John Pelham, an Alabama native, has been in our story before, actually commanding a battery at First Manassas. Horse artillery was a new concept 
although it was a main takeaway from the war with Mexico. Mobile, fast-moving guns would prove their worth. After showing quality performances, Palmum would be requested to command Stewart's guns, which he did, Unison being described as one of his finest moments. We'll talk about John Pelham in a future episode, but he is very much in the same category, I would say, as a Turner Ashby, who, spoiler, doesn't make it through the war, but he is sort of this symbol of the, again, chivalric kind of Southern aristocracy, and thus becomes very popular. He's a young man, which helps his story, and one of the officers that Stuart attaches to his command, I mentioned you know, young, attractive men that join his cavalry force um, and in many ways are sort of this symbol of the Confederacy. And we'll talk about Pelham here in a future episode, but we should just keep that in the back of our minds. Stuart would be forced to withdraw when the Union Army brought up more strength in numbers but the delaying action had its desired effect. Longstreet's wing was able to slip through the mountains and make it to Culpeper, ruining the federal plans to move on Richmond. To close out this week, we have more smaller-scale action with the Battle of Clark's Mill. Clark's Mill sits near the confluence of Bryant Creek and Hunter's Creek near Veracruz, Missouri. This small town is relatively in the central southern portion of the border state. A garrison of about 100 Union cavalrymen combined with militia were stationed here along with blockhouses to protect against potential raiding. Around 1,000 Confederate cavalry, maybe even as many as 1,500, were operating in the area coming out of Arkansas in November of 1862. This larger force had troopers from three combined cavalry units under the overall command of John S. Marmaduke. Now, Marmaduke was a Missouri native who attended Yale and Harvard before moving on to the military academy. Before the war, he had seen action in Utah. During the Civil War, he had seen action at Boonville and did good service at Shiloh. In late 1862, he takes over for command of all the cavalry in the Trans-Mississippi. Along with numerical superiority, the Confederates actually also had superior firepower, oddly enough. They had four six-pounders, which was heavier than the cannon the small garrison around Clark's Mill were armed with. I know this is a smaller-scale fight in Missouri, but I think it is important to talk about because this is the kind of engagement we have to turn to in order to find a situation where the rebels have the advantage in artillery, which, as we know from our previous episodes and also the future episodes, does not happen very often. Captain Hiram Barstow, the Union commander, was made aware of the arrival of the Confederate cavalry 
skirmishing beginning on November 7, 1862. This would devolve into an artillery duel that lasted a couple of hours. Understanding that the Confederates held the numerical and firepower advantage, Barstow would surrender. I have seen it where the Confederates demanded the surrender, and also where Barstow offered a surrender. I guess maybe it would depend on the source material as to who initiated the talks. Regardless, the Union troops surrendered. Horses and supplies were captured, and the blockhouses burned. The Federals were all paroled and released. Casualties were light, with no battlefield losses, but of course the garrison surrendering on the Federal side, and 10 killed, maybe 20 to 30 wounded on the Confederate side, showing the difficulty in their assault on a fortified position. And with that small action in Missouri, we can stop for now. Today we talked about Stuart's ride around McClellan, or at least his second ride around McClellan, also called the Chambersburg Raid. We had the Loudoun Valley Campaign and the engagement at Unison. Stuart's cavalry successfully delaying the Federal Army long enough to win the race to Culpeper, Longstreet's wing arriving before McClellan. We also had skirmishing in Missouri in the form of Clark's Mill. Next week, we will be talking about the patent of the Gatlin gun, as well as read off the Emancipation Proclamation. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.